Section two of the Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two Louis the fourteenth, seventeen fourteen. It is impossible to understand any period of history without bearing in mind the character of the earlier times. Although this little work is intended as a history of only one, and that a short period, the first fourteen years of the last century, it is advisable to give some account of the years that preceded it. The war which gave the chief significance to the period was the fifth and last act of a long political and military drama, in which, with almost poetical justice, the villain of the play receives his deserts. Of this drama, France, and all that borders on France, is the theatre. The chief actor is the King of France. Louis the Fourteenth succeeded to the throne in 1643, being then only a little boy. He died in 1715. During almost all the seventy-two years of his reign, France was at war. There were five general treaties of pacification, which mark five stages in the reign and form the termination of the five acts in the drama. They are called the treaties of Westphalia, Aix-la-Chapelle, Nijmegen, Reichweck, and Utrecht. Of the last of these, a much fuller account will be found in its place further on in this volume. The earlier history will be best followed by keeping these treaties as dividing points and filling up the intervals. The Peace of Westphalia was the peace which ended the Thirty Years' War. By judicious interference in the later part of the war, France had been able to gain her object. Germany was divided into many independent states jealous of each other. By the treaties, a balance of power was established in Germany between the two forms of religion, the Roman Catholic and the Protestant. The Protestant party consisted, moreover, of two sections who bitterly opposed each other, the Lutherans and the Calvinists. The result was that Germany was weak, and that France had no danger or shadow of danger to fear from that side. It was not until 1870 that Germany recovered from the exhaustion and disunion which were the cruel and lasting effects of the Thirty Years' War. As Louis was so young on succeeding to his father's throne, he was of course at first merely a nominal ruler. The work of his predecessors and of the ministers who governed France during his minority prepared the way for his future policy of ambition. On the death of Mazarin, the greatest of these regents, Louis, then aged twenty-three, came to his council of ministers and informed them, much to their astonishment, that henceforth he would manage his own affairs. From 1661 until his death, Louis shaped his own policy and is alone responsible for it. He had able ministers and was well served by them, but he was their master. This policy can only be described as a course of unvarying ambition and of perpetual attempts to enlarge and exalt France at the expense of her neighbors. In the history of some countries, the personal character of the sovereign is not an important element in calculations. 
the policy of england for several years wavered less and was more vigorously carried out when the feeble anne was on the throne than under the energetic and able william but with french history the case is different especially with louis the fourteenth l'état c'est moi the state i am the state was his favourite motto which he carried out to the letter so that his reign may be regarded as a perfect embodiment of absolutism his best quality and one most befitting his position though not too common amongst kings was industry he was indefatigable in the details of work indeed he needed all his industry since he took upon himself the work which had before been done by several secretaries of state he had capacity also enough said mazarin a competent judge for four kings and one honest man some writers have credited him with the virtues of generosity and religion his generosity however was only a form of pride his religion was bigotry when james was exiled from england louis received him with magnificence and provided him with a palace as a residence but such generosity cost him nothing and it was pleasant to have kings at his board his religion was a religion of externals had he been a sincere catholic he could not have treated the pope with the insolence which he showed toward him had he been possessed at all by the real spirit of religion it must have interfered with his cruelty with his indifference to the sufferings of subjects or foes with his reckless and insatiable ambition by that sin fell the angels there is an ambition which might seem almost worth the price of an angel's fall but the french king's ambition was only to add to his territory rude after rude wrestled with or without pretext from his neighbour in the furtherance of his ambition he was entirely without scruple in the forty years that intervened between louis's real accession to power and the close of the century from sixteen sixty one to seventeen hundred there were three great wars besides minor raids the first was undertaken in sixteen sixty seven against spain for the maintenance of a claim upon the duchy of brabant there was a law in brabant that all the issue of a first marriage female as well as male should succeed to a fief or an estate before even the sons of a second marriage in virtue of this law upon the death of the king of spain and the accession of his son charles the weak and sickly prince whose death caused the contest that filled the commencement of the next century and who was then an infant louis laid claim to the duchy of brabant and to other provinces of the netherlands in right of his wife who was charles's half-sister the claim was bad for two reasons firstly the law applied only to private property and had never been held to apply to the sovereign secondly as has been said before louis's marriage to the spanish princess solemn renunciations had been made of all rights which might pass to him through it but on this as on the later occasions the arbitrary louis did not allow such trifles as oaths or treaties to hinder him from acting as he pleased he had a strong army and might with him was enough but opposition appeared where he least expected it during the seventeenth century england was under the dominion of the stuarts 
whose foreign policy cannot be described as glorious or successful during the greater part of their reign the struggle with their parliaments gave them neither leisure nor opportunity for foreign affairs whilst the stuarts were anxious to rule without parliaments to be kings indeed like the french kings and whilst they were meeting with strong opposition from englishmen who preferred the old lines of the constitution it was not likely that they would engage in foreign war for wars cost money and as the raising of money was their difficulty they were naturally determined to ask for as little as possible the sympathy of the people of england was very largely with the protestants of the continent remembering the greatness of elizabeth's england the people would very gladly have seen their country take her place at the head of the protestant cause when the thirty years war broke out they would gladly have seen james send support to elizabeth his beautiful daughter for one winter queen of bohemia four times during the century england came thus to the front under elizabeth oliver cromwell sir william temple and william of orange on the third of these our attention must be fixed now sir william temple might have made his name one of the greatest names amongst the statesmen of england but he did not enjoy the turmoil of parliamentary struggles and was fonder of learned leisure than of office after showing very distinguished talents for diplomacy he shrank from the effort without which great names cannot be made it was however he who at this time when english ambassador at the hague conceived the idea of the triple alliance and carried it into execution sixteen sixty eight is the only year in the reign of charles the second on which an englishman can look back without a feeling of shame england holland and sweden the three chief protestant powers of the north of europe were leagued together to resist the continued growth of france which they regarded as dangerous to their interests and to liberty the formation of the league was sufficient to prevent the separation of brabant from spain though in other respects the terms which it obtained were not hard for france yet the french king chafed under the peace of aix-la-chapelle he thought the best way to treat england was to buy her king and by the secret treaty of dover louis bought charles the price paid was a sum of money annually as a pension and a promise to help him with french troops if the english parliament proved troublesome but against holland the revenge of louis took the shape of one of the worst because one of the most causeless wars in history his army invaded holland which was not ready for him being distracted by party spirit one party under the grand pensionary de witt was for yielding to so powerful a foe but the terms that louis asked were so outrageous that the mob in amsterdam rose in fury and brutally murdered de witt the other party regarded as their leader a young man to whose family holland owed priceless services but not services which could surpass those which from this time forward he himself proceeded to render to holland and to europe william of orange devoted himself to the task of opposing louis the enemy of his country the enemy of his faith and the enemy of freedom his heroic ardour always keenest when danger seemed darkest inspired his countrymen to resistance 
but so overwhelming seemed the force of the enemy that the dutch were very near despair the proposal was seriously entertained by them to leave their country and sailing away in their numerous ships to the dutch possessions in the east there to establish a new country for themselves Quote, there the dutch commonwealth might commence a new and more glorious existence and might rear under the southern cross amidst the sugar-canes and nutmeg trees the exchange of a wealthier amsterdam and the schools of a more learned leiden quote, footnote macaulay this proposal was not adopted though a resolution almost as heroic was carried out a great part of holland lies beneath the level of the sea from which the land has been rescued by the labour of man huge dikes or sea-walls had been erected strong enough to stand against the force of the sea and high enough to keep out the highest tide these it was now determined to open and to sacrifice the labour of centuries rather than submit to the invader the waters were let in upon the land and holland became like a great sea from which only the towns stood out the french troops were not prepared for this contingency nor provided with a flotilla of boats before the new defender the waves they retreated it is painful to an englishman to reflect that during this display of heroism his country with its king and french pay was on the side of france though parliament shortly afterwards compelled the king to separate from the alliance and before the war ended had certainly shown a change of policy in sanctioning the marriage of william of orange to princess mary the king's niece the war thus shamelessly begun became a european war into the details of which this is not the place to enter it was ended with the treaty of nijmegen in sixteen seventy eight which aggrandized france chiefly at the expense of spain this peace may be regarded as the zenith of louis's career it was after it that courtiers who knew not wherein true greatness lies hailed him with the name of great this title was formally bestowed on him by the magistrates of paris his later treaties mark losses of france rather than gain even in territory certainly the wars that they closed showed loss of glory the ancients believed that too great prosperity brought with it the wrath of the gods and the reason of this belief probably is that those who gain great success cease to exercise the vigilance that ensures it and become careless it seemed to be a special characteristic of louis the fourteenth that success engendered an insolence which seems to us almost like madness the madness of one whom according to the proverb the gods will to destroy with mere ordinary care as has been already shown he might later in his reign have avoided the war of the spanish succession but the insolence that is born of triumph made him insult the english people and their king so now in the interval of peace which followed the treaty of nijmegen and which may be compared rather to a sick man's broken slumbers than to the quiet sleep of the healthy he was guilty of three acts all unjustifiable and all unnecessary which brought ruin upon his head the first was the seizure of strasbourg in the sessions that were made to france by the peace of nijmegen 
was included all the territory belonging to certain towns louis intended this to be construed favourably to himself and instituted chambers of reunion composed exclusively of frenchmen to decide what territories had at any time belonged to these towns under cover of their decisions he made many additions to his dominions one more daring than the rest was nothing less than the important city of strasbourg a free city of the empire whilst louis declared through his ambassador at the imperial court that nothing was meant a french army of forty thousand men approached strasbourg as if for a review and before any assistance could be sent from germany if any could have been sent by a country so divided the city yielded to the french there were only five hundred soldiers within the citizens were at the time stricken with typhus fever and but few could bear arms louis's minister of war was present with the army under whose instructions the fortifications were strengthened by no less an engineer than vauban himself if the first act of louis's madness was an outrage on the stranger the second was a violation of justice against his own subjects it was the revocation of the edict of nantes in sixteen eighty five a century earlier france was torn by civil wars based upon religious differences the huguenots or french protestants were not very numerous but they were very earnest and zealous at length it chanced that the rightful successor to the throne was upon their side so that their party materially strengthened by the addition of those who were in favour of the rightful king whatever his creed might be and helped also by his valour and generalship gained the upper hand but henry of navarre found that it would be more for the interests of the whole people that he should accept the religion of the majority he became a catholic but he did not forget his old friends by the edict of nantes he guaranteed freedom of worship for the huguenots and the religious wars ceased fifteen ninety eight louis the fourteenth had by this time fallen very much under the influence of madame de maintenon who was a bigoted roman catholic and a furious antagonist of the huguenots she persuaded louis to revoke the edict of his grandfather and apparently after some hesitation he yielded to her entreaties sixteen eighty five a persecution commenced which drove the huguenots out of the land for they were not strong enough to resist france in this way lost many peaceful and industrious citizens who carried their skill and industry into other countries especially to england and holland the silk weavers of spitalfields where there is still a street called fleur-de-lis are descendants of the huguenot emigrants canterbury norwich and other places received colonies of them men also of a higher rank than the weavers with names famous in literature were among the emigrants and not only men of peace but skilful and practised generals and many soldiers left the country that repaid their services so ungenerously and joining her foes were found in later battles commanding or serving against france nor yet have we finished count of the injury that the revocation of the tolerant edict brought on france we must also include the rising in the cevennes an insurrection of the persecuted protestants who lived in the cevennes mountains in the south of france this took place at a time when france was hard pressed by external enemies 
and increased her difficulties in repelling them. But as if these two acts were insufficient, Louis added to them a third which was as ill-timed as it was cruel. Charles II of England, who had been a confederate of Louis, was dead. His brother and successor James was still more inclined to Louis, for he was a Catholic heart and soul. During the whole of his short reign he was making attempts to subvert the English church, and at length the English people were unable longer to endure them. In the early part of 1688 they were beginning to look hopefully across the water to William of Orange, son-in-law and nephew of the king. When forty years earlier the Stuarts had been forcing their will upon the English people, there had been no prominent member of the royal family upon the popular side. But now the people were more fortunate, and a hope was spreading amongst them that William would deliver them from their troubles. If Louis had been wise, he would have listened to the voices that warned him how strong the opposition to him would be if England were joined to it. He would have devoted himself to the work of watching William, and protecting James, his ally, from attack. Apparently, Louis was blind. He allowed his attention to be occupied in another direction with the crime that he was meditating. The capture of Strasbourg had opened for him a way into Germany. William of Orange set sail for England on November 1, 1688, but in the previous month Louis had caused a large army to march into the Palatinate in order to enforce a claim made by a princess, his sister-in-law, upon those territories, although the case had already been decided against her in the imperial courts. As this army could not continue to hold the country which it had seized, it received deliberate orders to ravage the whole of it, to burn the towns, and to destroy the trees, crops, and vines. The order was as ruthlessly obeyed as it had been barbarously conceived. A thrill of horror passed through Europe. A League of Opposition had been forming against Louis, known under the name of the League of Augsburg, which now that William had been successful and the English Revolution had been consummated without hindrance from France, received the accession of England and Holland, and was called the Grand Alliance. The war that followed, the fourth act in the drama of Louis' ambitions, may be divided into two parts. The one the attempts of Louis to restore the exiled James, the campaign in Ireland, of which the Battle of the Boyne was the centre, and the sea fights in the Channel, the other the Continental War. In the former the English may be said to have been wholly successful, for though the French won the Battle of Beachy Head, that victory had no permanent results and was soon and fully retrieved. In the Continental War the results were nearly balanced, for though the French won most of the pitched battles, the peculiar genius of William asserted itself. The qualities which made him more formidable after a defeat than others after a victory. Three years before the century closed, this war against the Grand Alliance was brought to an end by the Peace of Reichweck. The nations were tired of war and welcomed peace, but the ambition of Louis made it rather a cessation of hostilities than a real peace. Once more it was necessary to form the Grand Alliance, once more to resist his encroachments. End of section two.